Good morning. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Boyle. Thank you. Welcome to Pediatric Grand Rounds. Wednesday, the 27th of May, 2015. We enter June, our last month of the academic year, next week with our um, Pediatric Ethics Conference. Actually, the Dartmouth uh, Pediatric Ethics Conference will be hosted here all day, I believe, and I don't know if it's in this room or in these rooms, but we started off with Pediatric Grand Rounds on the Ethics of Non-Therapeutic Neonatal Male Circumcision by uh, Dr. Robert McCauley from the University of Vermont Medical School, and we will finish off our resident graduating uh, presentations on June 10th with Shashank Beher, our fabulous quiz bowl, and on June 24th, actually, we are going to screen the Raising of America uh, movie that we've talked about here in a couple of recent sessions about investment in early childhood. Um, as far as things that we've been up to, so up to some good, a few weeks ago I started to share a note from uh, Jessica LaPearl, our child life uh, director for whom we often, of whom we often speak when we talk about the essence of the heart of Chad, and she was sharing her observations on what she thought made Chad special through the eyes of her kids who had attended the Battle of the Badges in April. Uh, and so I, it was a long note, so I'm breaking it up into chunks, and I'm going to continue with her saying that although she has many moments to cherish with the wisdom of her children, seeing the Battle of the Badges event through their eyes reinforced my pride in being connected to Chad. In donor conversations, we often talk about the heart of Chad. And as a clinical staff person, I think that I somewhat take that heart for granted. I both see it and expect it on a day-to-day -day basis in the clinical settings, as do we. Watching the event, more importantly, watching the spectators, it became obvious to me that events like the battle make the heart of Chad tangible for those that are not in the room when the magic happens. If a four and an eight-year-old, her children, can speak to the power of what is accomplished at Chad, what, a, what does an event like this mean for an adult, someone who has accessed our care, our family with that child who needs our service? Um, so I agree. I, I, we've talked to, uh, in our in our um, in our retreat for our educational leaders last week about uh, advocacy, and one form of advocacy is, is is getting out there and telling our story proudly. And I will invite. And now that we have the tenth uh, Chad Hero uh, registrations are online, and many of you hopefully received emails for that. I'll invite everyone to please try to participate in at least one community event over the course of the year. It's it's not only a thank you and a give back to the community, but you really get an appreciation of how well appreciated you all are for the things you do, even by people who never do or hopefully never will set, set foot inside these four walls. So with that plug for continued advocacy coming out of our retreat, I have a chance to introduce one of our, uh, our learners who's contributing his graduation uh, grand rounds. In some ways, we feel like we've seen Sam grow up as he is a, a graduate of, of Hanover High School, growing up in the community. His parents are in the audience in the fifth row, who are also members of our, <laughs> members of our DH community. Uh, a standout track and field athlete, he also threw the hammer in college at Carleton College, graduating with a BA cum laude in biology in 2003. He then cut his teeth in research and medical research, uh, traveling the country, it seemed a bit, Sam, between Harvard and Washington University, but then 
returning to roost with Dr. Darnell working on SIDS research here at, at uh, Geisel and Dartmouth, also working with the palliative care program here. He went off to Albany for Albany Medical College and we were able to get him back here in 2012 to start his residency after receiving a gold humanism honor award, which I think we know is quite appropriate and is consistent with what we've seen. We in general academic pediatrics are always thrilled when we can show the light to anyone to do the, the powerful and important and beautiful work that primary care pediatrics is. And Sam um, actually is not someone we needed to attract, but someone who we just hoped would see what we saw in him from day one, which was uh, the role that he would serve in that way. And so he is going to continue to be a member of our community at South Royalton, joining a practice with Dr. Becky Folk and, um, and hopefully having as good a fit as we expect he will. So Sam, teach us with group visits. Thanks. So thank you all for coming. Uh, I'd like to just uh, start by giving a quick message to my fellow residents. Um, I hate you all for raising the bar so much this year. <laughs> um, so I'm going to be talking about uh, group visits. And the, the title of the talk is uh, An Ancient Solution for the Problems of Modern Life. I think you'll certainly find that the idea of a group visit is not something new to humanity. Um, first of all, uh, like I said, I do not have any financial disclosures at this time. Uh, I believe my salary is paid by Medicaid, so thank you all. <laughs> So I'm just going to briefly go over my goals. Um, after the presentation, I hope you all will be able to sort of describe the current challenges in delivering child care uh, through uh, well child care, uh, explain the current evidence for and against use of group well child care, uh, discuss the challenges of implementing group visits, which certainly exist, and we will discuss those at length, uh, and hopefully even consider some new applications for group care uh, here at DHMC. Um, my focus will be primarily on children and primarily on well child care. Um, but also, I will present some data from adults, and I'll be sure to mention when that's what I'm presenting, uh, and some other applications for group visits. Um, so uh, this may seem a little redundant, but just to give you a quick outline of what I'm going to talk about, I'll start out by just giving a description of what group visits are for those of you who haven't been involved in them in the past. Uh, I'll give you a history of group visits and sort of how the history of group visits intersects with uh, the history of well-child care, talk about some of the current challenges to well-child care, uh, and then some of the ways that maybe uh, group well-child care could help uh, address some of those challenges. And then I'll just give you a brief description of how to set up group visits. Um, so first of all, what is a group visit? So many of you have probably already been involved in group visits. Um, there have been many models of how to perform a group visit. What I'm going to be talking about is what's called uh, a homogeneous or cooperative group visit, where everyone is there for the same reason. And the goal really is to uh, provide counseling to a group of people and allow a group of people to counsel each other for an extended period of time uh, in addition to whatever else needs to happen during the visit. So uh, typically, again, the focus is on teaching, so it's a time when you need to convey a lot of material. Um, there's often a component of an individual exam or some individual time for questions, though not always. Um, and the makeup of the team providing a group visit varies quite a bit. So often it's just one provider. Often it's a provider and a team of nurses. Sometimes it's multiple providers or residents. And often no speech or language uh, and, and uh, nutrition will be involved. Um, but really the goal is typically to provide more education, um, allowing providers to sort of repeat less information and allowing the group to learn from the other members of the group. Um, so there have been many applications for group visits that have been used so far. Uh, 
certainly, I think some of the most famous ones have been the Centering Pregnancy and the Centering Parenting groups, which are used throughout the country. Um, in pediatrics, the most literature comes from uh, both treatment of diabetes and diabetes education um, and from asthma therapy and uh, asthma-related visits. But they've probably been used the most often in adults. So in adults, uh, you've seen group visits used in diabetes, hypertension, stroke, heart disease, uh, COPD. Probably not as useful for intermittent explosive disorder, um, but certainly for many chronic conditions. Um, at DHMC, I know that they're used uh, in dermatology. There's some literature that they've actually contributed on sort of pre-op MOS visits. Um, plastic surgery certainly uses them for the noggin clinic. Uh, and then there's... Uh, there at least, there's at least one set of group visits in internal medicine, general surgery, neurology, obstetrics, orthopedics, and rheumatology. So they're actually used pretty extensively uh, in our own institution. In PEDS, uh, certainly some of us have been involved in the Noggin Clinic. Um, I know that residents spend some time with centering pregnancy here. Um, I believe there are some group uh, insulin pump classes going on right now. Um, yes. Uh, and I know that in the past years there have actually been people involved uh, in group well child care in this very institution. So next I'd like to just give you a, a very brief history of uh, well child care and how it intersects with group visits. So certainly anticipatory guidance was you know, performed before 1967 and there were people seeing well children before 1967. But in 1967 the AAP came out with sort of the, the first sanctioned use for well child care and started coming up with the first uh, recommendations for when these visits should happen. Um, in the mid-70s, uh, Gutelius et al. did a, uh, an RCT that showed that you could get actually improved developmental outcomes with extensive anticipatory guidance. So sort of the, the first uh, sort of evidence to support the use of uh, well child care. Uh, again, certainly not all the interventions that they looked at uh, had a positive effect, but they did see that there were some uh, positive effects on some developmental problems such as toilet training, on uh, some abstract qualities like self-confidence and some effects on the diet of kids, which is certainly a big issue for us now. So they, they showed that you know, there were things we were able to change with uh, well child care. Um, in 1981, so in the beginning of the 80s, uh, Osborne's group came out with sort of the first studies out of Utah looking at group well child care. Uh, and then in the late 80s, the AAP came out with their first recommendations on what content should be covered in well child care, so what types uh, of topics should be covered and what anticipatory guidance should be given. And really, since that point, uh, to a great extent, the amount of content has ballooned, um, which I will discuss next. So, with current well child care, um, and the big challenge I think has been uh, information overload, um, both for, for providers uh, and sort of time overload as well. So, later we can discuss sort of any presence or lack of evidence uh, for current anticipatory uh, guidance. Um, but I think it's important to note that we've had a great deal of difficulty actually cover, covering all of the expected anticipatory guidance. Uh, so Chung et al. in 2006 had a nice review um, where they looked at what percentage of the recommended materials covered in well-child visits. And they found that you know, less than 50% of kids received uh, the recommended uh, and indicated teaching. Uh, and that kids also missed a whole lot of well-child care. So they missed 37 uh, to 81% of their visits. Uh, in 2011, uh, Norlin and all did a really nice observational study where they actually followed 52 providers through more than 480 visits uh, and just watched what anticipatory guidance do they provide and uh, how much of the bright, 
Bright Futures recommended materials were, were covered during the visits. Um, what they found is they covered about seven topics each and really only covered about 40% of the recommended material. Um, so uh, Triggs also investigated uh, if prompting providers with checklists, such as the checklists we use in our current well child care, would get us to you know, cover uh, more of the, the recommended material. And what they found is that you know, about 30% of the patients of the, uh, sorry, of the providers in their control group uh, covered material or without prompting. Uh, and with prompting, uh, about 53% of the material was covered. So clearly, you know, just giving us a reminder really wasn't enough to get the material covered um, for reasons that I think are obvious to any of you who've tried to get through all of the, the recommended material in one visit. Um, so next, uh, Bethel's group took the data from the National Survey on uh, early childhood health and they found that, again, only about 13 to 59% of kids received the recommended care, and that parents really left uh, without having all of their needs and all of their questions met a majority of the time. So 94% of the time, parents could think of a question that they wished had been answered during the visit right afterwards. Um, so I think what it really comes down to uh, is that we, we have lots of material we want to cover, but uh, actually being able to cover that material is certainly a challenge. And I think that was really illustrated well by Yarnell's group. Um, when they took the U.S. Preventative Task Care Task Force um, recommendations and actually calculated out how much time it would take to give all the expected and uh, anticipatory guidance to a standard panel size. And this is a family medicine group, so they looked at both uh, kids and adults, but they actually later separated out by children. And they found that it would take about seven hours per day to provide all of the expected anticipatory guidance uh, to a standard panel of patients, uh, which is certainly uh, a daunting task. Uh, I think that's, um, it was in response to that same problem that uh, this article, uh, Drowning in a Sea of Advice, uh, was published, really pointing out that it's even with the assistance of electronic resources, the amount of material that we need to convey to families is just daunting. So the question is, what do we do? <laughs> um, so I think there are a couple of different approaches to this. Uh, right now, there are people actively involved in investigating you know, what sorts of invent what, which interventions that we use in well child care and which anticipatory guidance is evidence-based. So they're sort of trying to pare down the amount of content that we give. But I think the other side of that is trying to figure out if we can increase the amount of time we have to perform these interventions. Um, people have looked at many different solutions. Uh, most recently, people, there's been a lot of focus on uh, online resources and augmenting uh, visits with, you know, uh, pre-health, uh, I guess, pre-visit questionnaires or uh, pre- or post-visit uh, electronic training. Uh, people have looked at sort of lessening the provider role in visits. Um, but what I'd really like to talk about today is uh, how group well child care may be helpful in this setting. So why would group visits help with this problem? Uh, I think the people who first started studying group visits really hoped that uh, they would, of course, provide more time for education, which is something we'll evaluate in just a minute, um, that they would allow families to teach each other and to learn from each other. Um, and they also hoped that it would be a more efficient use of provider time, since you can provide the same education once to a group of people rather than repeating it over and over again. Um, so what I'd like to do next is really critically evaluate uh, these ideas uh, and see if group visits could potentially help. So what I'm going to do next is go through and really just review all of the data uh, for or against uh, use of group 
visits, um, touching on all of these separate issues. So touching on uh, satisfaction of those involved, um, the outcomes for the family. Uh, most of those are looking at uh, maternal outcomes. Uh, how much education we're able to provide in group visits as opposed to independent visits. Uh, if there's any sort of difference in patient outcomes, if there's any difference in utilization of healthcare resources, uh, and something near and dear to my heart, uh, resident education, uh, and then sort of what the implementation challenges have been for group well child care and why, why it's not something that we're regularly using now. So I'd like to start by talking about uh, satisfaction a little bit. Um, first of all, from the earliest studies, uh, Osborne's group found that uh, there was actually pretty good satisfaction uh, with well child care. Uh, as, when performed as a group. Um, in their first studies in 81, they found that there was equal satisfaction between their control group of independent uh, well child care and their group well child care group. And then in their later research, they actually surveyed families and found that 75% of those involved in their studies would actually have preferred to be in the group well child care cohort. Um, I think these initial studies were criticized because um, they were performed uh, in Utah in a population that was mostly middle class, mostly Caucasian, uh, and possibly not the best representation uh, of the entire country. Um, but it is important to note that, uh, say, Santa and Downs in 2012 uh, did a study in a resident-run clinic that was 90% Medicaid patients in urban Indianapolis and actually found something very similar, which is that you know, patients really did prefer uh, the group well child care and really did have higher satisfaction with group well child care in their study. How providers feel about group well child care, group well child care is actually quite variable. So again, some people like it, uh, some people don't. Uh, but I think what's important to note is people who are exposed to it are much more likely to consider using it. So there's some great literature from the family medicine residencies that show that residents who are taught how to run group visits, whether it's group well child care, uh, or other visits are much more likely to use it or trial it in their own practice. Um, next, what I'd like to do is talk about family outcomes or uh, maternal outcomes and uh, how we can change things for families based on how we provide our well child care. Uh, so the first area that many people looked at is uh, empowerment. So there have been some very powerful uh, statements from many families and some interesting studies uh, that have looked at how patients uh, view, how patients and families view their care in a group setting. Uh, Coker et al. had a nice study in 2009 where they surveyed, uh, I think it was 56 uh, sort of parent uh, and child uh, dyads in a, a population in uh, urban LA, and they found that parents really were empowered by the presence of a group. Felt much more comfortable asking questions, uh, both subjectively and objectively. Uh, and then in 2013, uh, Wong et al.'s group did a study with adults where they found that adults felt there was less of a sort of power imbalance and felt much more comfortable interacting with a provider in a group uh, and didn't feel like they were, uh, one of the quotes said, wasting a provider's time. Um, and I'll, I'll let you read this quote because it's a, a nice quote that came out of the, the Well Babies program, which was a family medicine run uh, well child group, uh, group well child group out of UNC. Um, and there were a number of really nice quotes from this group, uh, including uh, one mother who just said, it's nice to know you're not out there by yourself. What it really comes down to is that parents enjoyed uh, the presence of the others around them. Uh, they really enjoyed having the opportunity to compare the development of their children to other children, um, and that they learned from the experiences of others and really valued uh, the input of their peers. Um, so 
I think the, the biggest factors that parents have noted is it's really nice, as I mentioned, to, to see the normal range of development, uh, to share common experiences, and to learn from the questions asked by other mothers. I mean, certainly your, your peer can ask a question that you were thinking of or that you had never thought of but will think of in two weeks when it suddenly becomes an issue for you and your child. Um, and that parents really enjoy teaching each other. There was a, a really nice quote uh, from, a nine, from a mother of a nine-month-old who said that you know, she'd heard all of the recommendations on sleep training, and it's one thing to be told by someone in a white coat you know, what you were supposed to do to make your child sleep. But when you're in a room with four other mothers who are going through the same thing, and they're sharing their own experiences with you, it gives you a much more, uh, much more confidence uh, that you are doing the right thing for your child. Uh, another area that that researchers have looked at is whether you can change the amount of stress that a family is under based on how you provide well child care. So uh, does all of this extra anticipatory guidance that we give to families sort of increase or decrease uh, their stress? Uh, now, Taylor et al. did some studies in the late 90s, uh, actually in a, a, a clinic that I believe Dr. Chapman was part of. Um, and what they found uh, was that there was really no difference in the maternal stress scores uh, for the mothers who were involved, and they actually had you know, 213 high-risk mother-infant dyads uh, involved in this study, and really no difference in uh, child protective services referrals. Um, so I think their study was probably underpowered to actually make any uh, conclusions about child protective services referrals, um, but at least, at least they didn't see any major differences there. Um, I think one of these Areas where we've seen the greatest benefit or expected the greatest benefit in well child care uh, is in terms of how much time families spend with their provider and what we can do with that time. So from the earliest studies by Osborne's group, uh, we've seen that families get about four times as much uh, exposure to their provider in group well child care as opposed to independent well child care. Um, and I think contrary to what many of us would expect, uh, families who are involved in group well child care um, and providers who are involved in this care often feel closer uh, to each other than in independent visits. So the, the quote from uh, this Osborne's initial study was that providers felt that they knew patients better after their group well child care visits. I think, think looking at it from the outside, I would expect people to you know, feel less connected to those who they're interacting with in a group, but what it really came down to is they were spending more time and the people they were interacting with were more comfortable interacting with them in that setting. So they felt they knew them better. Uh, and then Mittal's study in 2011 had a, a nice quote soon saying that the, that the biggest group advantage was developing closer relationships with physicians. So really the patients appreciate that extra time as well. Certainly with all that extra time, in addition to building stronger relationships, uh, you can cover a whole lot more material. Um, this is uh, a graph from Dodd's article uh, in 1993 where they looked at, they basically they followed 31 experienced physicians as they did both individual and group well child visits at two months and at 12 months. Uh, and they looked at what percentage of the recommended anticipatory guidance at that time was provided. Uh, as you can see in these darker columns, uh, those, that's sort of the percent covered in a group as opposed to the percent covered uh, in the individual visits. And what they saw was that they covered about an average of 41% of the material in independent visits and about 69% in the group visits. Um, this doesn't say whether the information, the extra information that was covered was remembered, um, but it was at least, they were at least exposed to it. And I think it's also important to note that, I mean, we're seeing, what, 50% you know, more material covered in these visits, but with four times as much time. So there's probably more time spent 
on each uh, individual subject as well, although that may just be conjecture on my part. Um, this is actually a, a nice table from that uh, paper as well. And what this paper looked at, or what this table looked at was uh, how is this information being conveyed to families? So are families sitting down in a room the way you're currently sitting down right now and being told all this information, um, or are they requesting it? Uh, and what they found was that groups requested information much more than individuals who were in independent well child care. Now, partially that was likely because you have more, more people who can be requesting information in the room, but also it seems that families were more comfortable asking their own questions. So looking at this table, you can see that you know, in, in areas where families were really interested, uh, a whole lot more of the information, a much higher percentage of the information was requested uh, than in uh, individual visits. And if you actually crunch the numbers, you can find that the overall percentage uh, of information that was requested by the families also went up. So it's not just that more information was covered, so they were requesting more of it because there was more time. They were also requesting a higher percentage of the information and, in general, more involved uh, in, in requesting information and receiving information. Uh, and we know that, that, certainly from the educational literature, that being more actively involved uh, leads to better retention and to better understanding. Um, so the next area I would like to talk about is uh, patient outcomes. So obviously what we really want is we want healthy babies. That's why we do it all. Um, so Taylor et al. Uh, did a really nice study uh, in 1997, which had sort of one major flaw. Uh, but basically their group looked at some recent literature which showed that if you actually went into homes and provided a whole bunch of anticipatory guidance, you could change developmental outcomes. Unfortunately, the costs were prohibitive. So you couldn't go and spend two hours in everyone's home at every visit. Um, but they'd seen this effect, and they wanted to see if there was another way of recreating that effect. So what they did is they, they looked to see if group visits and the additional time that you spend uh, teaching during a group visit could actually you know, have that same effect on developmental outcomes. And they did a really nice power analysis and ran a study, and then unfortunately their baseline data was very different from what they'd expected, and the study turned out to be underpowered. Uh, but it showed some very interesting trends. And I think that the trends that were most interesting were that there was a trend towards an improved uh, Bailey motor score. So again, not significant, but certainly a trend. <coughs> a trend towards an improved home score. And home scores are uh, correlated with school performance later in life. So a very useful and important uh, developmental uh, measure. Uh, and that there was a trend towards fewer high-risk home scores. So 4% versus 16% had uh, high-risk home scores, uh, which suggests that these are, there are fewer kids who are going to have severe problems later in school. Uh, again, all trends, um, but I think certainly an area that it's worth considering uh, future research. Um, it's also, I think, important to note that their interventions were all during the first 15 months of life. And there were some earlier studies looking at uh, extremely low birth weight infants that had followed them for those first 15 months and had not seen any difference, but then at three years uh, saw larger differences in the same variable. So it's also possible that there were uh, other effects later. Again, something we do not know. Uh, certainly we're very interested in whether you can change global health uh, for a, a child or overall health for a child by providing a group well-child care as opposed to independent well-child care. Uh, in Taylor's studies in 97, uh, this is actually a separate study, they looked at uh, 210 kids uh, and really found 
no difference uh, in general health as measured by an FS2R score. So this is a, a score that looks at 43, it's a validated score that looks at 43 different uh, aspects of general health. Um, I think their study was limited by the fact that they had only about 50% uh, attendance in both the independent and the group visits. So their, I think their intervention was less strong than they expected it to be. Uh, but certainly they didn't see any differences suggesting that uh, group well child care functions less well. Um, immunization compliance is another area that we're very interested in, uh, both because immunization uh, education and, immuniz and providing of immunizations at, group well, at well child care is one of the uh, sort of evidence-supported uh, areas in well child care. Um, but so far, we don't have a clear answer as to uh, what happens with immunization compliance in well child care. Uh, Taylor's study, again, with extremely poor show rates for both their independent and their group visits, uh, showed a trend towards decreased compliance in vaccines, um, whereas uh, later studies by Page et al., which used probably an inappropriate control, uh, showed a trend towards improved compliance and actually had 100% compliance with all of their families who were in their group while child visits. Uh, finally, it, it may be controversial to put this, uh, to put sort of attendance in well child care inside the health outcomes section, um, but that's, again, something we could discuss later. Uh, what we have seen is that uh, you do see improved uh, well approved attendance at well-child visits with group visits in some populations. So in Osborne's early studies, again, these are studies that were again, mostly uh, middle-class um, Caucasian mothers, usually weren't working. Um, they found that there was much higher uh, attendance at the group well-child visits. Uh, importantly, they did note that the mothers who returned to work had a much higher time making these visits, uh, and that mothers who had just returned to work often missed the next two visits. Um, but also, uh, Page et al. in 2010 found that they had improved retention of patients uh, beyond one year in their practice if they were part of their group visit cohort. So they had 81% uh, retention as opposed to the 62% retention in their standard uh, independent well child care. Uh, so an interesting uh, little note about the Page study is that all of the families that left the group well child uh, cohort were families that physically left the area and were unable to attend further visits after that point. Um, uh, as a counterpoint, um, Taylor's group, again, the group that I mentioned earlier that had extremely low uh, attendance rates in both their independent and uh, their group well child visits, um, noticed that there was a slight decrease in attendance in their group well child visits, which they attributed to the less flexible timing uh, in their uh, at-risk population. So another area we're very interested in, in is, is there any difference in healthcare utilization um, with group well-child visits as opposed to independent visits? I think people really expected there to be uh, decreased use um, because you can provide care to multiple people at the same time. Um, what they found is that really there's no difference from the initial studies. So both Taylor's group and Osborne's group um, really did not find any difference. Um, Taylor's group averaged you know, 19 and 20 minutes um, per, uh, I guess, per child in providing well, cha well child care in, in the two different settings, and Osborne's group averaged 16 versus 15 uh, minutes per child. So really no significant difference. Um, both authors attributed so the, the lack of difference to the fact that the, cohort, that the, uh, the groups that they were looking at were not as large. So they both, both groups intended to have 
groups of six to eight children um, together all at the same time in all of their group well child visits. Taylor's group ended up having less than three on average uh, per visit, and Osborne's group ended up having less than four per visit. Uh, so I think the education they were providing was split fewer ways than they expected it to be. I think likely for that reason, uh, they didn't see any sort of difference in the amount of providers. <laughs> it's also important to note that these are both studies that uh, had a provider, uh, a nurse practitioner, or a physician providing all the education. They didn't use any other educators. Um, and one other note I would like to make is that neither of these studies um, took into account the no-show rate for independent visits when they calculated these numbers. So if you added in the fact that you know, in addition to having no-shows for your group well child care, which drive down your numbers, they were also having independent no-shows, uh, the numbers may look uh, slightly different. So uh, another area that's very interesting is uh, how much unscheduled care um, families seek uh, if they're in independent well child care as opposed to group care. Uh, there have been some very interesting studies here. Uh, I'd like to start with Rice's study from 97, which is a, a very small, probably underpowered uh, controlled trial where they actually didn't randomize it, just placed families in groups of four. Um, but they found that there were fewer illness visits uh, in the cohort that was in group visits, uh, or at least there was a trend towards fewer illness visits with five illness visits uh, as opposed to 27 in the independent well-child group. Um, Taylor's group in a separate study hoped to show uh, a difference in ED utilization with all the extra anticipatory guidance that they were giving to families. Uh, and unfortunately, in their, in their primary outcome, did not see any difference. Um, they did what is probably borderline uh, data mining and did end up finding that there was a significantly increased number of uh, people who had at least one ED visit in the independent well child group, um, but that wasn't one of their uh, initial variables they were looking at. Um, what I think is probably most interesting comes back from some of the early studies by uh, Osborne and Woolley in 81, uh, where they found that families that received all of the extra anticipatory guidance in the group visits were less, uh, were less likely to consider their child's, their infants ill. Um, so what they would do is they would see the kids at the beginning of the visit, they would ask, what symptoms have you had since you were last here? And then they would ask the parents, have they been sick and have they sought care during that time? And what they found was that there was no difference in the rate of illness symptoms. There's no difference in the rate of, you know, coughs and runny noses, but the families that were in the group well child group were less likely to have considered their children sick uh, with the same benign symptoms. Uh, and they interpreted that as you know, a, a positive finding that they had more of an understanding of what is and is not good health. Um, the next area I'd like to talk about is uh, resident education. Um, most of the resident education uh, literature comes from the family medicine residencies. It's actually uh, pretty limited, but I just wanted to touch on it very quickly uh, since we have our own residency here. Um, so most of this information comes from uh, self-reported surveys. Uh, none of these are you know, the most vigorous studies, but I think it's still worth noting that residents endorsed uh, feeling an improved understanding of development from side-by-side uh, -side comparisons uh, that they saw in group well child care, um, that residents endorsed statements uh, that they had learned from uh, patients' questions. Again, this is not something they generated, but a do you agree that you have learned from patients' questions um, survey. Uh, and they noticed a subjective improvement in their understanding of the developmental range. So no objective finding there, but residents, again, felt that they had a better understanding of normal development. Um, interestingly, uh, Sesena and Downs found that 
there was a whole lot more uh, direct <coughs> observation of residents who were involved in group well child care, uh, and that they got a lot more direct feedback. Again, both things that we know are associated with improved uh, learning. Um, but since it, this is coming from the clinical literature rather than the education literature, uh, they didn't calculate how much more of the preceptor's time was involved in providing these group well child visits. Um, so, what does it take to start a, a group well child visit? Um, obviously, there, there are many barriers. Um, the first one being that you know, not, they aren't desired by all providers, they aren't desired by all patients. Um, but I'd like to touch on some of the scheduling difficulties, some of the staffing difficulties, um, some of the difficulties in finding space in a practice, uh, and uh, concerns that people have had about uh, billing and confidentiality in the past. So first, uh, looking at staffing, um, with their early studies in the early 80s, uh, Osborne's group uh, was very interested in what it would take to get people interested in providing group well child care. And they found is that in surveys of clinicians, uh, they're most worried about uh, staffing space and scheduling as barriers. Um, it, it makes sense, because many of the models involve multiple patients being roomed at the same time, uh, which certainly requires more staff and more space. Um, and they also found that it was a bigger draw on the folks who were doing the scheduling to have group visits, because you need to make sure that you coordinate having groups of people all in the same place at the same time, which is quite the challenge, as you saw from the numbers of people showing up for their group visits. So scheduling is far more complicated. Um, you need to have a practice that has a high enough volume. Um, so you need to have you know, enough people who are you know, six months old and ready for their six-month well-child check at the same time, obviously. Um, other concerns are that it's less flexible for families. So you know, if there is a Wednesday afternoon group visit and you are free Tuesday afternoons, that's too bad. Um, and you can't see multiple siblings at the same time. So you can't bring your three-year-old for their well-child check at the same time as your six-month is in their six-month-old is in their group well-child check. Um, there's also been many questions about you know, whether or not it's appropriate to bring sick kids to a visit like this. Um, and when you're providing you know, 90 minutes of education in a group well-child visit, uh, it takes more of a family's time than if you are there for 30 minutes. Um, I think it's important to note that while families do spend more time actually in an exam room receiving education in group well child visits, they do on average spend less time in the waiting room, um, which is an interesting note. Um, another thing you need is space. Um, I've thrown up a, a picture of Molly's place here, not, not because I think that we should completely take it over and use it for group visits all the time. Um, uh, but it, because it, it's important to think about what spaces you have available to your clinic and uh, what needs you have when running group visits. So you need to have a space that's large enough, obviously. Um, sometimes it's, these are performed in waiting rooms where families are used to all waiting together in general. Um, but some of the early studies found that they were short on things like bathrooms or chairs that they never thought they needed more of. Uh, and if you are performing uh, individual exams on people that are outside of the standard meeting room, you need to make sure there are enough exam rooms available for you to see multiple people at once. Um, people have been very concerned about uh, billing when it comes to group well child care. So is this reimbursable? Um, is it covered by Medicaid? What I can tell you is that as long as you are billing based on complexity, not based on time, that Medicare and Medicaid uh, don't have any problem with performing group visits. 
Um, if you were to bill based on time and say that you spent you know, 40 minutes providing education and bill five different families for those 40 minutes, um, that would be Medicaid fraud. Um, but if you're just billing based on complexity the way we do here, uh, it really wouldn't be an issue. Um, individual insurance companies, as always, all have their own policies, uh, but in general, there are very few that have any problems with group well child care. Now, in the adult literature, they've been very interested in uh, patient confidentiality as a barrier to group well child care. Um, Wong et al.'s group out of rural British Columbia looked at a whole bunch of adults, so maybe not the same population we have here. Um, but they found that uh, confidentiality was the most common reason that adults uh, opted out of group visits, and, um, but that most patients were actually not concerned about uh, confidentiality and that they were most concerned about confidentiality in terms of disclosing things in front of people of the opposite gender. I think that we have a very different population which is unlikely to have those same concerns, um, but there isn't any literature regarding confidentiality on pediatric populations yet. So next what I'd like to do with our remaining time is quickly talk about how to set up group visits. So what do you actually need? Um, most of the visits that have been in group well child care have looked at kids who are you know, 15 months or younger. Um, obviously you need to you know, recruit a large enough cohort of patients. So everyone has been aiming for six to eight patients in each group. Um, no one seems to have hit it well yet, but uh, I think you need to figure out how you're going to get the number of patients that you want in the room at that time. Uh, you need to make sure you have all the staff and figure out who's going to be involved. So is there going to be someone from lactation um, helping at, at early visits? Are you going to have someone from nutrition? Is there going to be a nurse educator? Um, again, that all depends <coughs> on the needs and the population you're working with. Um, so what I'd like to do is just quickly go over how a few different groups have done this. Um, so this is the format that the Well Babies group uh, out of UNC has published to describe how they provide their well child care in group visits. And I think it's useful just to quickly go through and see sort of how they've structured it. I mean, to start, they just have people check in. It's their standard check-in process as with any other visit. Uh, they have an introductory period where parents weigh the child themselves, um, often with the help of a nurse or with a facilitator. Um, and then parents actually go and they write all their concerns up on the board so that other families can see their concerns and add to the list. Uh, and then the facilitator actually checks in with each family and performs an exam on each child sort of before the group education begins. Uh, they have what they call their group bonding time where they're welcomed and where parents share something new about their child. Uh, and then they have what they call their, their tummy time where all the infants go to the center of the room uh, and they really go in depth into what is normal development and what are the normal developmental milestones for kids at that age. And they go through and they complement each kid on the things that they are showing and talk about things that other kids are showing, uh, giving parents a better understanding of, of what their child is doing and, and what's next as well. Um, then the bulk of the uh, visit is spent with anticipatory guidance. So they invite parents to share their questions. They go over all the questions that are on the board. And then they sort of guide the discussion to cover other uh, anticipatory guidance material. Um, and finally, they do their, their wrap-up, which means uh, immunizations. And the facilitator goes around uh, and makes sure that they've covered all the existing questions or anything else that's come up uh, during the visit. Um, so that's just a, a standard format for you know, how a, a practice has run a, a group visit. Um, if you were interested in a group visit that's not well child care but is more directed at a specific disease uh, condition, this is just a, a quick table um, describing how a family medicine group 
uh, organizes their appointments. I think this example is from an adult uh, diabetes clinic, um, but it's very similar in that people check in, they get their vitals, uh, but that, again, the bulk of the exam is, uh, the bulk of the time is spent providing education and doing some sort of shared intervention, in this case, a diabetic foot exam. I would hate to be in the room for 20 diabetic foot exams all at once, <laughs> but yeah. Um, so, as a quick summary, um, what I really want you to take away from this talk is that a group well child care um, is, is certainly an option. Um, it's preferred by many patients. Uh, and there is some evidence that it improves uh, the patient's relationship with their provider and the provider's relationship with their patients. Um, there's more time available for teaching, uh, more materials delivered, uh, and that there is actually more sort of uh, parental engagement. Uh, parents are sort of asking for more of the material on their own. Um, there's, I think, an important trend towards improved developmental outcomes. Um, but again, I don't think that the, the question has been fully answered there. Uh, and it gives, I think there's evidence that it shows that shows parents a little bit more about you know, what is normal and what is abnormal for a child. It gives them a better sense of when their child is sick. Uh, and there's sort of some trends towards fewer illness visits. Um, so in closing, um, as I alluded to in the title, um, we aren't meant to live in isolation. I, mean, I think that raising children is, it's a task that we take on with the group. It's a task that we take on with our peers, and it's very helpful to have the input of those around us. I think it's very artificial to have the information all coming from you no know, one provider in an exam room. And I think it's a much more natural way to have it provided you know, in a group surrounded by your peers who can also give you their own advice and their own experiences. Um, I think, as I noted on the previous slides, it is very difficult to implement uh, new programs in group well child care. Um, many of you probably realize that we tried to start a group well child care program here this past year and ran into uh, a number of barriers, the main one being that we just simply didn't have staffing for it, um, which is, again, something that many other practices have found as well. Um, but I think that this is a really nice place to start a group well child uh, cohort. So we already have uh, cohorts coming through the Centering Pregnancy Group, um, and we know that the families are very happy with that model, uh, and many have actually asked for uh, a group well-child model afterwards. Um, I'd also like to comment on sort of the age of the studies that have just gone over. Um, as you saw, very few of them were from the last five years. Um, much of this research was done in the, the early 80s and the late 90s. Um, and I actually posed the question to you guys, um, you know, why, why we think that is. I mean, I've thought about it myself, um, and I'm kind of surprised that we haven't done more of this in the, in the intervening time. I think you know, part of it's probably just that there isn't especially good funding. Um, part of it's probably that there's interest in uh, validating current well-child recommendations rather than figuring out how to provide all of uh, the anticipatory guidance that's currently recommended. And part of it's just the difficulty in starting new programs. Um, or maybe just that the focus has moved to other methods, um, such as electronic records and electronic uh, education tools. Um, but I think that's a, certainly an, an interesting question. Uh, and finally, I'd like to, to just touch on the idea that we really do need more research here. Uh, <coughs> so I would really like to see us you know, all, all think about you know, how we could use group visits in our own practice, and when using them, how we could actually contribute to the literature, because I think there's really a need for more uh, literature and more studies uh, in this area. 
So I'd like to invite uh, everyone in the audience, uh, certainly to give me your thoughts on uh, any other barriers that you've seen to group visits and any other experiences that you may have had uh, with group visits to this point. Um, here are some references. I'm happy to provide them afterwards uh, if you're interested. And I'd just like to give a, a quick thank you to everyone in the Chad community um, who's taught me uh, with special emphasis on the people who really supported me through this uh, current project, uh, Dr. Shubkin, Dr. Tansky, Dr. Van Hoff, Dr. Gifford, and certainly all the fantastic teams that I've worked with and the, the ICN, uh, the ward, the PICU, the newborn nursing <laughs> <laughs> clinic too. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Thanks, guys. Dr. Chaffee usually sees them, our nurse sees them, physical therapy, orthopedics will all see them, and then they have this group education where they split the parents from the, the, the kids, and yeah. there's a support session. So I think that's been very successful here. But you're absolutely right. I think the amount of time to put that together is, is it's um, backbreaking, actually, for the people yeah. to put that together. Uh, and part of the reason that it's successful is because there's actually funding for that. So, the, you know, there's food, there's... We can help them with transportation, all of these things that we can't generally do for our, our other patients. Yeah, yeah, that's a good point. A any interest in publishing out of that? <laughs> <laughs> I did think about, so as you put the, put, as you started talking about this, we, we never talked about this. You know, this yeah. is just something we've been doing. We should look into that for our group. Please, please. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> um, I was wondering about uh, if you have any information about this sort of explosion of um, internet chat. So if families are going and talking to each other, is that taking a place of some of this um, more organized with physician type of group visits? Because yeah. you can chat with other moms, you can chat with, if you, we hope yeah. the physician, you know, it's... Not every site is as regulated as others. <laughs> yeah, so that's, that's a really good question. Um, I mean, I think there have always been other areas for people to chat as well. I mean, whether it's, you know, with a church group or whether it's, you know, at their daycare center. Um, <coughs> I think one of the really nice things about uh, this, about doing it in a physician's office is that you can regulate the chat. Um, so we don't necessarily spend quite as much time talking about how vaccination causes autism <laughs> on the internet. But, no, um, but I think that, that's a good point, that there certainly are other outlets and, and other ways of getting you know, some potentially similar effects. Yeah. All right, Kathy. Thank you. Um, first, uh, Sam, congratulations. You kept the bar held very high um, in the standards for, uh, for um, grand rounds and resident presentations. So congratulations, you did fine work. Um, the second thing is I was wondering if you could comment on some of the interprofessional use in, of our nursing colleagues in group well child care. Um, one would argue that my time as a physician is not incredibly well spent doing a lot of well child care, and certainly other developed countries don't use pediatricians for that reason. Yeah. As much as I love it, I've been doing this a long time, and it's really important to me. Um, and so I was wondering if you looked at how we can use our interprofessional nursing colleagues to provide the education, the anticipatory guidance, um, some of the, the, the work yeah. that I do every day. 
So I think you actually pointed out a really nice hole in the literature as well. So certainly in, in other areas of group visits, um, especially in the adult literature, a great deal of the care is provided by nurse educators. Um, all of the studies that I looked at uh, had care that was provided uh, you know, by nurse practitioners or physicians or residents. Um, but I think that's a very reasonable use. Uh, and certainly there are people who are experts at providing this education who could be involved. Uh, I think that makes great sense. Yeah. Um, a couple of practical questions. Um, how do you deal with the electronic medical record when you have six, eight? How do you document this individually? I mean, you do it as you do it, but when you do your exam on the baby, or how do you do that? Is that limiting in any way? Yeah, so I think, yeah, I think what you can do is, so if you were doing an individual exam and there's an individual time for questions, and you can do sort of the separate documentation um, for, for kids at that time. I think that's typically how people have done it. And the second question is, what if you have a baby in this group that clearly has some deficiencies? Yeah. And how do you deal with that? Um, so they're all doing tummy time, but one baby obviously is way behind the others. Yeah. How do you deal with that in a group? That, so that's a really good question. Um, and I, I think one piece that I probably didn't stress enough is that they really looked at group well-child care as most appropriate for healthy children. Um, so a, a kid who is having significant um, developmental delays or a kid who is having, who has you know, major medical problems that are uh, contributing to their care really probably should be seen in an independent way still um, and probably wouldn't do quite as well in that setting. Yeah. I think that's a good point. Yeah, I was too. So I actually have a group visit Tuesday mornings at South Wales and Los Angeles and joining us, and you can't pick out those developmentally delayed kids for the newborn visit. Um, so we've had a lovely group of four moms who actually see each other outside of our group visits too at a like, play date, um, and one of them was clearly behind. They're nine months old now, and um, clearly not doing as much gross motorly. Um, and it's amazing how supportive the other moms have been of this family. Like, he's going to get it. That's great. You know, talk to early intervention. What are you doing? They check in with each other every time. And I get to hear about it while they're talking about it. Um, so it's actually, you know, I was also worried, you know, oh, is this mom going to be totally depressed by seeing all these other kids? And we talked about the different range of development. So, you know, maybe this child is doing more vocally, but this one's doing more motorly. And, you know, just talking about that has been really helpful. And I think the mom of the child that's not typically developing goes home feeling very supported and excited about the future with her child. So it's actually been really useful, and we haven't separated them out. So. Good. Thanks for sharing that. Um, so I did the Noggin Clinic for a while, um, and um, two things, the EMR piece of it, our um, shared um, medical appointment office or the people that set up the Noggin Clinic actually provided a um, medical transcriptionist. And so as I'm doing the exam, I'm, I'm, I'm talking out loud, I say the measurements, I say what I'm noticing and hearing this, and so they're taking notes on everything I'm saying. Um, and so if I just, you just have to talk out loud about your exam, which is part of the sort of teaching and parents get to sort of see what their child's, a comparison of their child um, to other kids. 
And as far as the sort of abnormalities, um, there was one instance in the clinics that I did. They're supposed to not really have kids in that clinic who have craniosynostosis, um, but it did happen once one kid sort of got through. Um, and so in the um, presentation, initial presentation before doing the exams, we talk about every once in a while, you know, here are some things that we find. And if we find something like that, we'll, can, we'll um, have a brief discussion and then have some, like basically an individual appointment. Um, as we were just talking up here, um, that's you do in a well job visit. <laughs> so if you have a bunch of stuff come up, then you say, okay, we're going to follow up and we're going to have another appointment about this. And for a major thing like craniosynostosis, that appointment happened immediately following the group um, well child care. But I think that it's not really so different from other things. And I totally agree with what Ashley said is that families, um, even meeting each other for the first time, you can see this sort of bonding happening. And um, some parents who felt like their kid was like, totally abnormal and you know what's wrong with my kid and they came there and were like oh like it's not this isn't you know my kid's not a freak like parents said that multiple parents said things like that and that was just astonishing to me that i didn't realize that was how they were perceiving things so i think that the group environment was really helpful good good so Sam, I also wonder a little bit about managing parents who are sort of on the opinionated side and might disagree <laughs> with the guidance that you provide. I struggle with that even at the fourth trimester group, so we're really there to be sort of a supportive pediatrician, but you really have to figure out how to balance you know, validating people's concerns with sort of sharing your medical opinion. So I wonder if you read anything about that in the literature or sort of have thoughts on that. So there were a couple of articles that had uh, anecdotal notes about uh, the group sort of pulling people back from the brink. Um, <laughs> but I, I feel like there's the danger that it could go the other way as well. Yeah. I thought of that when you put up the vaccine data. You know, if you have one parent who really yeah. feels strongly and is sort of spreading their opinion in that group, it, that's something that needs to be managed. And I just sort of see yeah. that as a challenge at yeah, I think one of the groups of authors said, you know, referred to those sort of fringe ideas and when you had a cohort of people who could normalize. Yeah. Uh, again, you, you could, it's a challenge. That's a challenge. Yeah. So, Sam, I noticed one slide at the beginning um, where you the, the, the data that pointed out 7.4 hours a day on this work, but it was 0.6 hours per child, which is only 36 minutes in a year for each child. It, it begs the question whether that, that's too much time or whether the panel sizes are too big to do this effectively. That's fair. So, <laughs> the torch has been held high throughout the class. <laughs> Everybody have a good day and a good week. <laughs>